This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Majority Report, The Alternate Radio Hour, Citizen Radio, The Tom Hartman Program, The Young Turks, Jim Hightower, and Melissa Harris-Perry. And a note that, yes, in the last episode, I called out Melissa Harris-Perry for something terrible she said, and yes, I'm promoting something she's saying in this episode, and if you think that's a paradox, you're doing it wrong. This is a wonderful story of a tech writer and tech entrepreneur who is speaking power to power, and in fact, speaking power and saving power for power. Sarah Lacey is a, uh, apparently a tech columnist, but it seems to me that the difference between the libertarians who usually call this program and one who is sort of uh, an internet entrepreneur is that the internet entrepreneur is generally a little bit more intelligent and also a, a little bit less politically in, uh, inclined. And so they're really just shooting off the hip. They're basically like a smarter Adam Carolla is what it comes down to. And Sarah Lacey seems to fit that mold quite well. She, is, uh, she runs the, uh, the internet uh, publicity site, I guess tech publicity site, Pando Daily. It's like a gossip thing, right? She, she used to be a writer at TechCrunch. She also, is a, she also does PR consulting. Yeah, okay. But then right, she went over PR. and started Pando Daily. Yeah. Okay. And apparently uh, she is very, very upset or was very upset with the BART strike. The employees of the, well, the, the mass transit system in the Bay Area, out in San Francisco and Oakland, uh, went on strike. They're, they've since come back uh, to work on a 30-day extension. And she is uh, talking about how uh, she wants someone to disrupt BART. In other words, wants a technology that will make mass transit or this mass transit system I guess, you know, change the paradigm. And uh, there is a way to change the paradigm. It's to make it bigger. Uh, the fact of the matter is that the paradigm is mass transit. Mass transit is mass transit. Could these things be improved upon? Yes, indeed. Just like every other institution that exists. Usually in the tech world, when they say something like that, in terms of the BART strike, it usually means, let's find a way to automate this so we don't need these menial workers. Right, anymore. I guess, indeed. Um, but this is what she told uh, NPR. If I had more friends who were BART drivers, I would probably be very sympathetic to their cause. And if they had more friends... Now, I just want to contemplate that for a moment. In other words... I really only decide who's in my social circle, and that's where my empathies lie. But I'm not in that social circle of people who are making whatever it is, 60, uh, 65 grand a year, I don't know what they make in San Francisco, who are trying to have a middle class life, who we trust with the lives of literally hundreds of thousands of people daily. I would probably be very sympathetic to their cause. And if they had more friends who were building companies, they would probably realize we're not all millionaires. We're actually working pretty hard to build something. Now, I don't know what the implication is that she thinks that everybody who's building a company, that all the BART people think that everybody who's building a, country, a company is millionaires. But there's certainly a ton of millionaires uh, in San Francisco, uh, in the San Francisco area. Uh, certainly, uh, you can see the rise in the uh, price of, of all sorts of goods, particularly housing in San Francisco, as an example, over the past 20 years. We're actually b uh, working pretty hard to build something. People in the tech industry feel like life is a meritocracy. You work really hard, you build something, you create something, which is sort of directly opposite to unions. <sighs> now, I understand that she has no friends, obviously, who are in a union. And she doesn't realize that unions built the infrastructure, members of unions built the infrastructure of just about everything she uses in her daily life. The phone system, the internets, 
the car, I mean, the cars that she drives, the roads that she drives on, just about everything that she uses in her daily life was built by a member of a union. Now, she also, because she has no friends in any unions, apparently doesn't realize that people who work in unions also work hard and also value hard work. And this meritocracy she speaks of. Now, she went to Rhodes University, uh, a private, um, small liberal arts college, probably not too different than the one that I went to. I don't know whether or not she took student loans out or not. I don't know if she realizes that only uh, that the percentage of people who get to go to a small liberal arts college is infinitesimally small in this country. And I find it hard to believe that everyone who were there is really there based solely on merit not the capacity to pay, not the luck of who they were, uh, whose family they were born into, not the opportunities they had because of those families they were born into, not because of the color of their skin or because of the relationships that their parents had forged at a time where there was far less competition, uh, not the value maybe that their parents had uh, to send their kids to college and then send their grandkids to college because they worked at a union and built the middle class. Uh, you know, PR is not something that strikes me as a profession that is um, completely divorced from who you know. And it's not who you know, like, you don't go into PR because you know a lot of people who dig uh, roads or drive buses or work in the subways. That's not what situates you for a job at PR. What situates you for a job at PR is to hang around with wealthy people who are VCs, who, are, who have had the opportunity to get an education that allows them to be in a position to learn new technologies. It's just grotesque. Look, I have no problem with people being ignorant, but to have the immense nerve and chutzpah, to parade your ignorance in such a fashion, to parade your lack of empathy, which is really rooted in a fundamental ignorance about the way the world works. To parade that around, uh, I think, is, is just reprehensible. So, I don't know what it takes to build a PR company, um, but apparently what it takes, part of it, according... Uh, to Sarah Lacey, is a complete disdain for uh, anybody who is, well, you have to appreciate people who are making, you know, six figures. But anybody below that, forget about it. It's those people six figures and up. We're not all millionaires. And, uh, you know, you can Google her and see the uh, pictures of her home, wherever she lives. Quite nice. Quite nice. Not a millionaire, maybe. Doing quite well. Now, I think progressive politics in this country has been pretty depressing of late, especially at the national level. But there have been a few real bright spots, and one of them has been seeing low-wage workers uh, organizing for better lives, fighting back. Tell us a little bit about the Fight for 15 and the strikes plan for next week. Uh, in Chicago, the Workers' Organizing Committee of Chicago uh, emerged as a slowly growing 
union and groups of workers in the fast food and retail industry started to getting getting together about a year ago talking about the need to improve their wages and working conditions since then if you've known as you've seen in the news these uh, union movements have sprung up around the country and workers are organizing themselves in a lot of different uh, regions and cities across the country fighting for 15 as a living wage right and uh, we are some cities are going to have uh, a series of the strikes in the week coming up and in Chicago our effort has been primarily concentrated around the retail and fast food workers in um, a rather limited geographic area because of the concentration of employment and profits in those areas which is downtown Chicago and the Magnificent Mile although workers across the city are definitely starting to organize in various neighborhoods and uh, while we're talking about your organization, I should note for listeners that this is also happening in, in New York next week and other cities across the country. And I think most listeners to this show know the basic story here, right? The, the federal minimum wage in this country is seven twenty-five an hour. If you have a kid and you work full-time at the minimum wage, you make about $15,100 per year. The poverty level for the same household is $15,500 a year. And if the minimum wage had kept pace with inflation, Inflation over the last 40 years, it would stand at 10.25 an hour if it had kept pace with workers' productivity. And this is, I think, a really stunning statistic. The amount of goods and services a worker creates, it would be 21.70 per hour. Folks, right. keep, keep that in mind. Now, Lorraine, McDonald's put out a helpful budget for their employees last week that's gotten a lot of attention. They had 20 bucks for health care, uh, health insurance, when the cheapest insurance they offer is almost $60 a month. They had nothing in their budget for heat or child care, and they assumed that that their workers would be working two minimum wage jobs. I work a lot of hours, but I, I do soft work. I work indoors, sitting at a computer. I have air conditioning. I can take breaks when I feel like it. I can take a couple hours off if I want to and make it up when I want to. What are some of the problems that workers you work with, uh, fast food workers, retail workers, what are some of the problems they face working two jobs that require standing up all the time and you know hustling? Right. Well, first of all, just to just to briefly mention the McDonald's wage uh, budget calculator, it was truly outrageous because McDonald's in in themselves acknowledged that you cannot uh, live on their wage alone. That's right. That you have to have a second job. And uh, what we see as endemic to all of these industries is the fact that these corporations, including McDonald's, really refuse to give their workers a 40-hour week schedule. And so many of our workers in Chicago are actually patching together two McDonald's jobs from two different locations to try and make money in that second job. But again, as you mentioned, it's entirely accurate that if you're working full-time, if you manage to patch together a 40-hour work week, and you're making the minimum wage, you legally qualify for food stamps, Section 8 housing, and Medicaid. You cannot, you are poverty level and you cannot support your family. So these are really, and in addition to that, they're just simply facing unbearable uh, situations. They have completely erratic scheduling, not knowing what exactly their schedule is for the following week. And if, let's say you're even working two jobs at two different McDonald's establishments, your, your workload is really way over the 40-hour week. It's more closer to a 60 or 65-hour week because of transportation between two different establishments which might be separate from each other and all of the coming in early to get prepped and uh, cleaning down, you know, cleaning off uh, to leave the job. And on top of that, the actual working conditions, speaking of the lack of air conditioning and heat, is simply appalling. At one of our major McDonald's, women are regularly passing out because no air conditioning and the magnificent mile. The pregnant women are always passing out on the job while they are working. And not to be grotesque, but this is in fact what's happening, women and men are just sweating so profusely that the sweat is dropping into the food that they're preparing. 
all because of a lack of adequate or even zero air conditioning whatsoever. Standing on their feet constantly, and um, this is just talking about McDonald's, uh, but these same conditions are faced in all of the fast food companies that uh, are are attracting workers to the Piper 15 cause. You know, in New York last week, there was a woman who passed out at a McDonald's without air, any air conditioning, and management had said that they don't want to provide cooling because they don't want people hanging around. They want people to get their food and then leave, so they, they didn't provide air conditioning. Tell me about the barriers to organizing low-wage workers in, into unions. I mean, I know that there are significant barriers to organizing working people in general in this country, but are there things that make this group especially challenging? Well, yes, it's because the actual conditions of their work really produce chaos in their lives. And it is not that they have chaos in their lives, it is that the conditions of their employment induce chaos. So there is no proper scheduling at all. People cannot better themselves by finishing college degrees and graduate degrees because they simply cannot put one class in their schedule, for example, every week because they might be called to work. And obviously when the salaries are so low, the workers are working tremendously hard at numerous jobs and trying to make money in whichever way they can. So um, these are barriers to work, but at the same time, I should say, the organizing has really moved along very rapidly because workers have just decided we cannot take this anymore. These are unbearable conditions. They're inhumane conditions. And um, they just simply can't even survive as human beings. Are you seeing employers retaliate against workers after these walkouts? Well, no, after the walkouts, in terms of layoffs, it would be, or firings, it would be illegal for employers to do so. And we have not had any employers who fired an employee after a strikeout or walking off the job during a strike. I want to go through some of the... Um some of the arguments that low-wage employers put out there. Uh, does raising the minimum wage destroy jobs? No. Um, that's an argument they, that they put out, but it really flies in the face of economic reality because it is widely known by economists that low-wage workers spend all of the money that they receive because the need is so great. So if you raise workers' wages, let's say, to $15 an hour, which is a very modest demand, it, that's not even a great deal of money anyway. It's just lifting you above the poverty level, right, right. lifting a family above the poverty level. Workers are going to spend that amount of money, and that is going to be returned into the economy and create greater consumer demand. The profits are so enormous um, amongst these retail and fast food industries. For example, in the Chicago area in 2011, just the retail and restaurant sectors alone produced $14 billion in, in revenue. So there's quite a bit of cushioning uh, for workers who can not even survive. They, they literally cannot survive. We have workers working full-time who are homeless every day. And, for example, at our one of our establishments, Jason's Deli, he begs for money every day after work in order to get bus fare home. Jesus. Now, we often hear um, that minimum wage workers are mostly teenagers working summer jobs. They're not expected to support a family. How does that comport with the reality that you see uh, from day to day in your contacts with workers? Well, uh, a lot of folks are doing studies on this very topic right now. And whereas the minimum wage worker, the fast food worker, uh, used to be around 21 years of age. As of now, the average age for a fast food and retail worker is 30 years of age. And within our campaign, we have hundreds of workers who run the gamut from 18 years of age to 70 years of age, who are supporting families, children, grandchildren, extended family. It's just not the reality. And I, I would expect that as the jobs crisis continues in our country, that that age is going to keep rising. There is, this is a rise, you know, and that's, that's where the direction is headed. 
If folks, if you're just tuning in, I'm speaking with Lorraine Chavez about low-wage workers fighting back, fighting for some human dignity. Uh, Lorraine, McDonald's CEO Don Thompson uh, told Bloomberg News this week, and let me, let me quote from him. He sure. said, quote, we're about providing opportunity. We are going to provide opportunity so that, per- so that a person can rise through the system and gain, gain greater and greater wealth. How much upward mobility do these workers tend to have within a company? They basically have no upward mobility, as a recent report by NELP just outlined. In the fast food industry, for example, um, which as of, uh, as of recently had a total employment level in the fast food of about 4 million uh, workers. Of those 4 million workers, the frontline occupations, meaning the cashiers, the cooks, and the crew, those were about 3.5 million workers out of that total, so 89%. The managerial, professional, and technical occupations as part of that constitute only 2% of that total. So there's really very, very little room at the top for upward mobility because the vast, the way the occupations are structured, it's vastly frontline occupations, and their median hourly wage is $8.94 an hour. Um, And it varies, of course, by corporation and by company. For example, for every one franchise owner who would be, you would consider yourself, I guess, on top of that, you know, food chain. Right. Right. You have about 293 employees. And similarly for for Wendy's and Burger King. So um, the, the mobility really does not exist at all. These are very, these are structured in such a way that they have a vast necessity for low wage, well they pay low wage, but vast numbers of workers who are not managerial at all. And um, the, the so-called frontline supervisors, which would be just above the cashiers and, and the cooks and the crew, they're only 8, 8.7% of the uh, employment group in the fast food. And their hourly wage is only slightly above the cashiers, the cooks, and their crew. Their hourly wage is estimated at around $13 an hour. So um, this is just not true. And it, it does not bear uh, any relationship to the actual studies of all these industries that have been done. Folks, it's important to remember that this isn't just about wages or hours or health care or specific working conditions, even though it's about those things. It's also about human dignity. This is about making sure that there's some reward attached to work, hard work, that these workers are trying to raise children and have a little piece of the so-called American dream. They're working their butts off day after day, and they deserve some dignity. Lorraine, before I let you go, how can people support low-wage workers in their struggle for that human dignity? Well, if there is a low-wage strike in your area, please don't cross the picket line. Refuse to give your hard-earned dollars to these establishments which refuse to treat their employees as human beings. Y'all hit them where it hurts and bite the hand that feeds. You might get one to three or probation and a fine. But I know where I'm going to be. I'm going to be right on that front line. Put your hill and see the Chavez who fought in their own time. For all brothers, now sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women standing up and standing strong. Okay, so I have a new article at The Nation that's been... It's getting some buzz. been getting some buzz, so thanks to everybody who's already retweeted it and reposted it. Um, it's about the largest fast food walkout that has ever occurred in the United States. Uh, it is currently, yesterday for you guys, happening in seven cities, uh, including New York, Chicago, Detroit, Milwaukee, St. Louis, Kansas City, uh, and in Flint, Michigan. 
And it's very exciting because it, there's a, a whole host of grievances, but primarily it's about raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Um, you know, there's also been uh, concern from workers uh, about stuff like wage theft and McDonald's releasing that really insulting, stupid budget calculator that was like, get a second job if you want to live. Whose idea was that? I don't know, but man, they have to be regretting it because that just looked so terrible um, and really bolstered support for the workers because they have been saying we can't survive on wages. And here was McDonald's saying, we agree, get a second job. Um, So this is really exciting because President Obama recently just made his uh, class divide speech where he was essentially saying it was interesting, actually. He went further than I've ever heard him go before, where he said uh, racial tensions won't get better. They may get worse because people will feel as if they've got to compete with some other group to get scraps from a shrinking pot, which is true. Uh, We've talked a lot about that on Citizen Radio, that people sort of. Uh, turn against minorities instead of aiming up at the 1% when they feel like they have less and less uh, means. Uh, But what really bothered me about his speech that he gave was that he didn't use the word poor. And that's interesting because right now poor people and historically poor people in the United States have always done the best organizing around labor issues. And right now that's happening with the fight for 15, fast food forward. These are poor fast food workers. What words are you using? Like unfortunate? Middle class. The shrinking middle class. It's not true. It's inaccurate. But they don't like to say poor. When I say they, I mean politicians, not just the president. They don't like to use the word poor. Because they want to get away from class war. They don't want to make it seem like it's rich versus poor. Well, because if you say poor, that implies that, like, they have dropped the ball. Like, if someone is, like, if you meet someone and they're like, I'm in the ever-shrinking middle class, you're like, you're fine. But if someone's like, yo, I'm fucking poor, you're like, oh, I need to help this person. Or something has gone wrong. Yeah, right? that, the that's a really good point. It, it switches the blame from the institutions of government to the individual. Right. And not only that, but I feel like when you're middle class or in the ever-shrinking middle class, you can trick yourself into thinking you're doing okay. Where, you know, I mean, we've talked about this on the show before, and, and this was... Largely by Allison and I's choosing, although we were working at a bookstore where we would have had to have a second job, but it was because we wanted to be artists that we didn't go on food stamps or unemployment just kind of out of a pride thing because we felt like we didn't deserve it because we were like, well, we're going to be artists. We're trying to be artists. So like give it to somebody else who deserves it because we didn't know how it worked. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, I feel like if I thought I was middle class I would feel really guilty and somehow like it's my fault, even though I thought I was poor. If someone's like, dude, you're not poor, you're middle class. Yeah, that, I don't know. You know what I mean? That's another like, thing. The, when they say middle class, it's sort of, uh, you know, you, you made it. We're all in this together. Yeah, and you're like, oh, I guess I'm just down on my luck. Right. As opposed to. There are, there is the rich. And there's the poor. There is a, a very small middle class and there are a lot of poor people. Yes, exactly. Um, and if you phrase it that way, it, it seems more desperate. It seems like a lot of the blame is, should be, uh, you know, uh, cast upon the 1%. And it should be, yeah. uh, because they've rigged the system and they stole from millions of Americans. Um, so the reason I was disappointed that he didn't use the word poor was for all the reasons we just said. But at the same time, the AP just released um, the findings of survey data that shows four out of five U.S. adults struggle with joblessness, near poverty, or reliance on welfare for at least parts of their lives. Jeez. A sign of the deteriorating economic security and an elusive American dream. Four out of five. That's crazy. And you're not going to say poor? I know. You know? Um, so if if everybody could share uh, my article about the fast food workers walkout, share it on Facebook, share it on Twitter. Um, it's really important because this is the only meaningful way poor people can fight back through collective actions. And... We should all really admire what fast food workers are doing right now because the reason workers at McDonald's, KFC, Wendy's were always hesitant to organize is because they could very easily get fired and be replaced like within the hour. 
So for them to organize um, when they're not part of a union, when they don't have protections, is super brave. Yeah, and I mean, this country kind of gets off on making these workers feel stupid and feel like shit. Yeah, a lot of the time I hear when I write about this, people tweet me with no compassion and they say... Even liberals. Right. Those are shitty jobs, so they should make shitty wages. And that is such a classist fucking elitist thing to say where it's like preparing your food is not an incidental job that's a really important job the only reason you think it's a shitty job is because we pay them shitty wages or mcdonald's and does treat them like shit and you know i hate i hate i hate to say this please don't be mad at me i'm just trying to be as honest as possible um there have been times where i've seen these workers interviewed and my first thought is holy shit you are so smart and that's a terrible thing to think um and the reason i'm thinking that is because we've been trained to think that these are just the dumb fucks of the world and this is the only job they can get. When in reality, a lot of them are really fucking smart. Well, not only that, here's, here's my thing. Let's say they're not smart. Let's just say hypothetically that there are workers who didn't go to college, who didn't do well in high school, and now they have what we call the bottom of the wrong jobs. They shouldn't fucking starve. Right. They should still have living wages. Yeah. They're still using their labor, right. and they should be compensated. The shit of, you don't have a college degree, you don't have a white-collar job, therefore you should starve, yeah. is such a fucking monstrous thing to think. Well, and also, like, again, we live in a country where it's like you get paid the most for fucking people. Like, okay, so you make someone's food, and you get paid nothing. And you have to work two jobs and you can barely afford the food that you make, which is horrible, unhealthy food. And it's like the more you fuck people, become a cop, fuck people a little more, get paid a little more, uh, work for the government, fuck people a little more, make a little more, become, uh, you know, the like a CEO of a big company, become the CEO of a bank. Become the president. It's like the more you're fucking people, the more money you get You get paid. That's like the scale in America. Right. Um, so I wanted to amend something I just said, which is obviously there's not a direct correlation between people who get college degrees and, and smartness, you know? Um, I dropped out of high school. Yeah, like a lot of people don't go to college for any number of reasons. They don't want to go. They, they have a family. They can't uh, afford to go. There's a whole lot of reasons people don't go to college. The people who work in, in the fast food industry, to say, generally speaking, they're not smart is su such a generalization. It's so insulting. And there is a lot of uh, racism as an undercurrent in this in this debate we're having right, right now where a lot of fast food workers are poor people of color right. um a lot of them are women single moms trying to make a living you Yuck. know trying to support their children Ew. um and the fact that they are so readily dismissed by as you said a, even a lot of liberals who say yeah those are shitty jobs they shouldn't make good money to me just reeks of not just classism, but racism and sexism as well. Yeah. Uh, we saw that in the BART strike in California. A lot of the BART workers who were going on strike were women, people of color. Uh, I'm late to go fire people. Can these <laughs> Negroes please yeah. hurry up with things? What's the language we heard? They're greedy. They're disrupting my commute. They're mean. You know, like these really, the dumbest possible way we could discuss a labor dispute. And it's happening again with Fast Food Forward, although there's a little more sympathy this time around, I feel, because McDonald's really shot themselves in the foot with that budget calculator, where they conceded that you can't survive on our wages. Where it's like, shit, well, that's the debate. The debate's, the debate's over now, right? Yeah. They can't survive. Right. Uh, you have to raise the minimum wage. Uh, but as as we've seen elsewhere with like Walmart trying to come into Washington, D.C. and basically saying they're going to take their toys and go home if they raise the minimum wage, these huge companies like Walmart and McDonald's do not want to raise the minimum wage. Um, so it's up to workers, it's up to direct actions to force their hand.
Hi everyone, today in lieu of asking you to support this show, I want to ask you to support my fundraising effort for this year's Climate Ride. This will be my second year in a row raising money for 350.org, the best climate organization I know of with a massive international reach, and the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, the best local climate organization, which works in Maryland, D.C., and Virginia, and also happens to be the place where I used to work, so I know personally how much they deserve the support. In exchange for you helping me reach my goal of $2,400 raised, I will be riding my bike the 300 miles between New York City and Washington, D.C. over the course of five days in September. To contribute, simply visit climateride.org and search for my name, Jay, and you'll see the full name, Jay Tomlinson, pop right up. Click the name to see my fundraising page and make a tax-deductible donation. I've already contributed to get the ball rolling. Thanks in advance for your support. We are now up to uh, nine cities where fast food workers who typically earn 7 to $9 an hour are saying no, no thank you. Well, actually, they're saying yes, I'll keep the job, but uh, for a day, for a day, I'm going to go out and strike. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step off the job here. Uh, they're, they're calling for a $15 hourly wage. This is for pretty tough work. Uh, Working with hot grease, working with cranky people, working, standing, standing on your feet, having to, uh, having to eat this stuff because <laughs> it's there. Oh, I'm going for lunch. Where are you going? I think I'll go someplace else. No, you can't do that. Um, so anyhow, today uh, at three o'clock, when when this show first went on the air, uh, Manhattan in in New York City in Union Square, they were meeting. And then there were also uh, walkouts on Monday in Kansas City and St. Louis. And uh, in the over the last or over the next few days, according to the activists who are putting this thing together, and there's a wide variety of them, we will see the same thing happening in Chicago, Detroit, Milwaukee, Flint, and Seattle's already done it. They're expected to repeat it. And Washington D.C. has had three separate strikes so far this year. This is a, this is this is pretty impressive. I mean, when you've got the president of the United States calling for a nine dollar an hour minimum wage, federal minimum wage right now seven twenty five. It would be ten dollars and twenty cents an hour if it was simply where it was in nineteen sixty eight, when the economy was doing very well. Thank you very much. But the president is saying, "Hey, you know, how about just nine? And Republicans are saying, "How about zero? No, I'm serious. I'm not making that up. I'm serious. There's, there, you know, there's a whole substantial contingent in the Republican Party who are saying, "Oh yeah, the minimum wage that should be at zero." We don't need those stinking minimum wage. These uh, Republicans are saying, you know, it's, it's like, you know, why should a company have to pay? Here's the here's their rationale. If you have a minimum wage, then it's not possible. To, let me rephrase this. There are some business activities which are so marginally profitable that they can really only afford to pay two or three dollars an hour. Why should those businesses not be able to exist? Or there are some business owners who are so greedy that they only want to pay three, two or three dollars an hour. And by the way, at the same time, there are people in some cities who are willing to work for two or three dollars an hour. And in fact, the, the fact of the matter is, there's people actually right now, right this minute, all across America who are working for two or three dollars an hour. A lot of restaurants pay two dollars an hour plus tips. A little, little bit over two dollars an hour. But then you've got agricultural workers. You've got people working out in the fields, which is some of the you know hardest, most backbreaking work, where they're making three bucks an hour or less. So this is, I mean, you know, this is not just you know some kind of theoretical thing. This is actually going on. I mean, that the, the, there's <laughs> there's there's people being paid very very little, 
and we've as a society we've kind of said okay well you know the 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 people working in the fields and the maids and like you know we'll pay them less which i have a problem with i you know people say well you know your food is going to cost more it's not going to cost that much more remember when john mccain was was talking about you shouldn't raise the minimum wage up to the minimum wage for agricultural workers in Arizona because nobody would come pick our lettuce, John McCain said. And, you know, it turns out that, in fact, McCain said, you know, I don't think anybody would do it for $50 an hour. Thousands of people sent him, you know, I'll do it for $50 an hour. So it's not a question of, you know, are you willing to pick lettuce? It's are you willing to pick lettuce for $3 an hour? There's, I don't think there's any shortage of people in this country who would pick lettuce for $10 an hour. And, uh, you know, I've, and, I, and my, the basis for my saying that is, is the conversations that I had with Dennis Weaver when he was still alive. The guy who used to play in Gunsmoke, you know, he was Chester in Gunsmoke and played Sam McCloud, the TV series, and... Dennis Weaver was a good guy. He was a friend. I wrote the foreword to his autobiography, which is called All the World's a Stage. And he invented this thing called economics, which was the merger of economics and ecology. It's a brilliant idea. And around the time he died, we were working on trying to figure out how to, how to make it go farther. You know, there were a couple of universities that were picking it up and teaching it. But anyhow, Dennis Weaver uh, told me the story, and he tells it in his book, The Whole World's a Stage, his autobiography, with an introduction by Tom Harbin. He tells this story of how when he was a kid, it was during the Great Depression, during the Dust Bowl days, and, and his father had left the family, and his mom took him and his sister and I think a brother, I think there were three of them, and put him in the station wagon and drove from the panhandle of Texas, as I recall, up to the central Washington state, and they picked strawberries. They were migrant farm workers, and they worked their way down the coast as the season expanded, you know, being migrant farm workers, working for what in today's dollars would probably be, you know, five, six dollars an hour. So anyhow, the, the Republican argument is that by having a minimum wage, you're, you're, you're eliminating the ability to have these entry-level jobs, and you're cutting people out of the workforce, blah 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 And my response to that is, number one, there is no empirical evidence to support that. When the minimum wage was put into place in the 1930s, it did not increase unemployment. It reduced it. It was a stimulus to the economy because minimum wage workers spend 100% of the money they earn as opposed to Mitt Romney-level workers who save most of what they earn. And when you spend 100% of what you earn, you are stimulating the economy. The job creators are the bottom 50% of Americans in terms of income. They're the real job creators. They're the ones creating demand, arguably the bottom 80% of Americans. It's probably the bottom 80% are spending everything they get. And secondly, business is a privilege in this country. There's nothing in the Constitution or the Bill of Rights that says you have the right to own a business. If you want to own a business, if you want to conduct business, and you want certain tax advantages, and you want limitations of liability, and you want all the, all the benefits that come with a corporation, with having a corporation, owning a corporation, using the corporate form, if you want that, then you have to conduct yourself by certain rules. There's accounting rules, there's taxation rules, and then there's like rules like you gotta pay the minimum wage. And I don't know why we can't as a society simply say, if you can't do business in this country and pay your workers at least ten dollars an hour, you have no right doing business.
Major protests have been taking place in seven U.S. cities, and they involve fast food workers who are demanding better pay and the right to form unions without intimidation from their managers. Uh, now, the biggest protests are taking place in New York City. They would like to be paid $15 an hour, and as I mentioned, they would like to form unions. Um, and CEOs are very resistant to this, understandably so, because they're worried about their bottom line. They also make the argument that if they pay their workers more, then you, as a consumer, are going to pay more for your food. So um, at the University of Kansas, an undergrad student uh, did some research to see how much more it would cost us if we doubled the salary, not just of the uh, fast food workers, but also the CEO. So he included the CEO in this research, which I found really interesting. And I want to give you guys uh, the numbers. So doubling the salaries and benefits, the Big Mac would increase by 68 cents from 3.99 to 4.67. If you look at the dollar menu for instance, everything on the dollar menu would be about 17 cents more. So Well, then it wouldn't be the dollar menu, would it? It wouldn't be the dollar menu, it would be the dollar and 17 cents menu. And the whole country would go bankrupt. And remember, this research includes CEO pay. So you're doubling the salary for everyone included. Just to give you an idea of how much the uh, CEO of McDonald's made last year, uh, I'm sorry, in 2012 compensation, it was 8.75 million dollars. Right. So now, the strikes that are going on in all these different cities mm -hmm. are for all the different fast food chain. So McDonald's, Taco Bell, Burger King, etc., right? Uh, they just, in that particular case, took McDonald's as an example yes. of the way that if you doubled everybody's salary, you'd still have pretty cheap burgers, right? I mean, you're not going to bankrupt anybody with that. Now, look, does it make a difference marginally to all of us? Yes. And especially the poorer you are, that 17 cents per dollar is going to make more of a difference to you, right? But and so maybe it's a little easier for me to say, hey, you know what? I, I'd pay that in a flat second to double all their salaries, mm -hmm. right? Especially the salaries of the people who work there, because the difference it makes to them is gigantic, gigantic. Can they afford food for their family? Can they afford health insurance? Uh, can they work one job or do they have to work two jobs, etc. And so I totally understand these strikes. Part of the reason for that is companies will say, well, look, you make these arguments about food, but then if I do that and Taco Bell doesn't, I'm going to have a competitive disadvantage and they're going to go over there, etc. Uh, and I got to get my shareholders every red cent I possibly can. Yeah. But if you strike, well, and you demand better uh, wages, well, then they can turn to their shareholders and go, there was nothing we could do. They struck. Yeah. I, I love that they're taking to the streets. And, of course, they're doing so at tremendous risk because a lot of these people, you know, need these jobs to pay for their families. They don't have a salary. They're making a wage. And, you know, every day that they're not working, they're losing money and they can't support their families as a result. But just to give you guys an idea of how little of the revenue from McDonald's goes to its workers, new data indicates that only 17.1% of fast foods, uh, of the fast food giant's revenue goes to the actual workers. Mm -hmm. Less than 20%. That's insane. Well, Why is the CEO making more than $8 million a year? I'm sure that they can, you know, switch things up a little bit and pay their employees a fair wage. And by the way, when you really think about it, I mean, how many cases are there where fast food employees are doing nasty things to the food? And the reason why that they're doing that is because they don't, they don't care about the job. And they don't care about the job is because, they, because they're not being treated appropriately. You're yeah. not going to feel excited about what you're doing if you're treated like crap. Not only are you not invested in the company and the job, mm -hmm. but you feel like, what difference does it make if I lose the job? It's not like it's a valuable job. It's like minimum wage most of the time. Exactly. So if I got a you know, uh, bunch of taco shells, maybe I go ahead and lick them like a story that we did recently. Mm -hmm. And then we're like, oh, can you believe he did that? Yeah, I kind of can actually. He's a young guy, he's goofing around and he thinks, what difference does it make? It's all minimum wage, right? And, oh, and then we had the guy at Subway who was putting his penis on the bread and he froze his pee. Ew. And yeah, I mean, he's doing all sorts of things. It's funny. Well, that one's kind of funny. <laughs> they made the bread in the form of balls. God. Okay, but... But the rest is because they're treating the company like the company treats them like shit. They say it's the forces of the market at work. When folks like us lose our jobs and our homes. But when it's the fat cats who lose all their profits, well that they tell us is a global depression. 
And I know it's just the system, just the market, just the powerful few Who create these hard times that I may not get through So tell me you bankers, you captains of industry How do you sleep in your mansions tonight? Surrounded by privilege and the comforts of wealth Are you proud of your greed and your corporate practices? Do you know, do you care that your actions today have made another family homeless tonight? The failure of our corporate and political leaders to make sure every worker gets good health care is causing some unpleasant consequences, not just for them, but for all of us. Consequences like stomach flu. Ill workers often spread illness. This is because millions of employees who deal directly with the public as well as with co-workers are not covered by paid sick leave policies. So, when they come down with something like stomach flu, they still tend to drag themselves to work rather than going to bed until they recover. For staying home means a loss of pay or even loss of their jobs. Low-wage workers, such as those in the restaurant industry, are particularly vulnerable and, since they handle food, particularly threatening. Nearly 80% of America's food service workers receive no paid sick leave, and researchers have found that about half of them go to work ill because they fear losing their jobs if they don't. As a result, a study by the Centers for Disease Control finds that ill workers are causing as much as 80% of America's stomach flu outbreaks, which is one reason that CDC officials have declared our country's lack of paid sick leave to be a major public health threat. You'd think the industry itself would be horrified enough by this endangerment of its workforce and customers that it would either take the obvious curative step of providing the leave or of pushing in the name of public safety for a public sick leave program. But, au contraire, amigos, such huge and hugely profitable chains as McDonald's, Red Lobster, and Taco Bell not only fail to provide such sensible care for their employees, but have lobbied furiously against city and state efforts to require paid sick days. This is Jim Hightower saying, all top executives who never touch the food their chains serve get paid sick leave. For them to deny it to workers is idiotic, short-sighted, and even more sickening than stomach flu. The great fast food strike of 2013 continued today, with workers walking away from the cash registers and burger grills and friolators to picket for a livable wage. They are asking for $15 an hour, twice what they typically earn. And they have been asking in Chicago and New York and St. Louis, Detroit and Flint, Michigan, at restaurants like KFC and Taco Bell. They went on strike today at a McDonald's outside Milwaukee in the western suburbs, saying McDonald's can well afford to pay them more. This nationwide strike comes with funding from one of the biggest unions in the country, the SEIU. In Milwaukee, an SEIU member said she sees the movement growing. Quote, more and more workers are beginning to realize they have a voice. What those fast food workers do not have is a union. They do not have a union job. They have MIC jobs and MIC wages and MIC benefits. They do not belong to unions, and it is not at all clear that they stand any real chance of forming unions at the local Burger King. The history of improving the lives of workers in this country is very much the history of unions. Organized labor created the weekend as we know it. Unions fought for laws against child labor in this country, and back when no one had health insurance or maternity leave, unions negotiated for those benefits. And the benefits became the standard for everyone. Union membership in this country has been falling over the last half century. That is the red line here, see, falling. The blue line shows what has happened to the middle class in that time. 
also falling. As the unions have been shrinking, so has the middle class's slice of the pie. These days, a union member is five times more likely to work for a government than a private company. Public workers are the last stronghold of labor unions in this country, the last stronghold for the people who brought you health insurance and the weekend. But that stronghold is not looking at all strong. In February 2011, Republican Governor Scott Walker calls for the stripping of union rights from public workers. It was one of the first moves he made as governor of Wisconsin. And the backlash from the public was immediate and sustained. It went on for weeks, the biggest protest the state had ever seen. The unions and the public knew exactly what was at stake. They knew, but they could not stop the bill. Governor Walker signed the bill stripping union rights from public employees in March of 2011. Now, the idea behind the bill was fairly simple. It took away unions' ability to collect dues automatically from members. So each member had to choose to pay each month, which makes union membership feel more expensive. At the same time, the bill limited public workers' rights to bargain for better wages and benefits. So, being in a union felt more expensive just when the new law made that membership seem less valuable. It is classic consumer psychology, and it worked. Within months of Wisconsin's law taking effect, teachers were trying to figure out how to get members to stay members, to pay their dues, and stay involved. By the end of 2012, the state teachers' union had lost a third of their members, so many that they agreed to merge. Last year, union membership nationwide hit the lowest level since the Great Depression. In Wisconsin, union membership declined 14% last year. In one year. Now, Governor Walker is floating the idea of taking union rights away from police and firefighters, too, since it's been working out so well for the other unions. Here's the thing. When Republican officials talk about stripping union rights, they say it will save the taxpayers money because the teachers won't be able to bargain for raises and benefits. They say it will be good for the union members who won't have to pay dues anymore and so on and so on. That is the public argument for taking away union rights. But there's another explanation for why Republicans like Scott Walker would be so determined to go after labor unions. Back during the Wisconsin protests on this show, Rachel Maddow ran the numbers. Watch. In 2010, post-Citizens United, seven of the top ten outside spending groups in the election were all right-wing. Chamber of Commerce, both of Karl Rove's groups, the American Future Fund, Americans for Job Security, all of these right-wing groups, the only non-conservative groups that cracked the top ten were the Public Employees Union, the SEIU, and the Teachers Union. That's it. Unions are the only competition Republicans have in electoral politics. Post-Citizens United, conservatives look at this and they smell blood. I mean, compare this to 08. They have knocked the unions down to sixth and seventh place. Without unions, essentially all of the big money in politics would be right-wing money. All of it. That is not hyperbole. All of it. Unions are the only players. They are the only fish of any size on the liberal side. And, you know, it is nice to think, well, you know, I have this really awesome PTA group. Bake sales. I've got a uh, meet-up, drinking liberally, book club, honk for peace thing that I do on Wednesdays. We could probably raise some money. It is true that those are good things. It does all matter. But nothing matters as much as this. I realize it is not romantic sounding, but this is really how it works in politics. This decides who wins elections and who loses them. And if Republicans can use public policy to destroy their only competition for big political money, if they can use public policy to destroy the only major institutions that help Democratic causes at election time, then Republicans can run the table. All right, you got it? Unions not only gave us the weekends and health insurance, unions not only gave us the middle class, unions then gave that middle class a way to take part in the political process, in the significant part of the process that involves putting money into political campaigns. And when union members get involved in campaigns, they tend to throw their considerable support behind Democrats, not Republicans. In our politics now, rightly or wrongly, we have big money corporate interests on the Republican side. And their only competition comes from unions. So Republicans try to take away the unions. They try to make it so they can run the table. 
that part of the plant is also working. Today, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reported that the public unions in Wisconsin are losing their influence in the state capital. Quote, in just two years, spending by the state's public employee unions on lobbyists has slipped from the summit of Wisconsin politics, leaving business interests uncontested at the pinnacle of capital lobbying. The state's largest teachers union used to be the leading presence in the state house for educators in Wisconsin. Now they have gone from seven figure spending on lobbying to relative peanuts. Their spokesperson says they are trying to make do without paid lobbying. The top five lobbying groups in Wisconsin now are mostly business types like hospitals and manufacturers. The folks lobbying for teachers and janitors and snowplow drivers are all but gone. This is a huge shift in our politics, and it may be a lasting one. We cannot know if Republicans in Wisconsin were motivated to strip union rights in order to achieve this end. But it's hard to imagine they regret how it has turned out. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or to relate your firsthand experience from a political event that you attended to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So I, I know, I know, I just thanked people who called into the voicemail line, but I didn't play any voicemails. I'm sure some people have called into the voicemail line, though I haven't had time to hear them yet. Because a death in the family has me off, uh, you know, visiting with family and doing that whole sort of thing. So this episode is actually pre-produced. Uh, thank goodness uh, for the magic of podcasting. So you're welcome. Yeah, really, seriously, it's, it's not a big deal. You're welcome. It's good timing, though, because I actually have something to talk about that has nothing to do with uh, any voicemails that have come in and, and is perfectly related to today's episode. So just recently, I mean, th- I'm going to tell you about a show that I'm watching right now, and it's not... Um, like particularly new, it came out in 2012, so it's not that old either. And it's uh, it, it popped up on my Netflix as you know recommended thing. So my girlfriend and I uh, checked it out. It's about uh, the Titanic, and so you know 2012 was the uh, you know the, the 100 year anniversary of the sinking of the, the Titanic. And so I guess a couple of shows, but you know, big, uh, high production value miniseries were made. And this one that we came across is a 12 part miniseries is called Titanic blood and steel. And we just thought, hey, you know, it's about the Titanic. How bad could it be? We'll check it out and watch an episode or two. And now we're, you know, halfway through it or so, but you know, big surprise to us. I mean, the show's not about the trip of the Titanic is actually about the construction of the Titanic. And then beyond that, it's not just about, you know, how it's built and what goes where and and those sorts of things. It's all about, I mean, 80% of the undercurrent of all the storylines are about the struggles of the workers and the conflicts between uh, the workers and the capitalists and, you know, J.P. Morgan, the person, not the institution, the person, J.P. Morgan, is, you know, one of the financiers of, of the whole project. And so there's all this conflict between uh, the workers who can easily be injured on the job and the management. And then there's, you know, attempts to unionize and, uh, you know, the conflicts that causes uh, the, the the British government comes in and, you know, helps the management. It's a whole it's a whole thing. And so, um, like making this show that you just heard, you know, I, I told my girlfriend, I was like, oh man, like I'm, I'm hankering, like we got to get back to Titanic. I, I want to watch another episode because it's so like blatantly pro union and, you know, pro worker and all, all the, all the, you know, good main characters are workers who just are trying to make it in the world and feed their families and whatnot and, uh, are, you know, are constantly being crushed by the, money-hungry management and so forth. So I haven't seen the whole thing, but I definitely recommend what I have seen so far, at least. Uh, so I'm, and I'm going to continue watching the rest of the series. Uh, if you want to check it out, it's on uh, Netflix as part of, you know, it's on Instant Watch. It's on Amazon Prime, if you have that. And so you can stream it for free uh, with either of those services if you're already signed up. Or I'm sure you can purchase it. It's on DVD or wherever else uh, you prefer to get your videos.
Secondly, today, I just wanted to get caught back up thanking all of the people who have made donations to my climate ride. Uh, so to name off the, the most recent donors, uh, Rayno Banerjee, and I apologize for all the horribly pronounced names, um, Eileen Tepper, Trevor Iverson, Ellen Smith, Robert Donjacor, Ken Goodman, Cliff Carson, Jody Wartenberg, and Michael Schlegel. Uh, God, I hope I got you know at least a few of those right. Um, all donated recently, thanks to all of you. Uh, the total now, uh, I've raised 45% of my goal, so I'm up to $1,075, only making my way up to $2,400 total. Uh, the ride is in September, so we got a little bit of time. It's not time to panic yet, but if you're interested in donating, uh, the money goes, as you've heard me say, you know, over and over in, in the show, the money goes to the Chesapeake Climate Action Network and 350.org and to Climate Right itself, and which does an excellent job promoting, you know, fossil-free uh, transportation and bringing awareness to climate change and so on and so on. So if you're interested, go to climateride.org, search for my name. Donate what you uh, are able and feel you want to contribute, and every little bit is appreciated. And that's going to be it for today. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, of course, to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That's how the program survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can see past